people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is our Greetings and welcome back to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathbun, hot off the trail of attending CPAC. I uh, had a great time. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Our website is aneconomyofone.com, aneconomyofone.com. Of course, Facebook is an economy of one, Facebook, economy of one. Our number here, if you got a comment or question, want to give us a call, 844-244-3750. Toll free from anywhere, 844-244-3750. Well, like I said, I just got back from CPAC. Yeah, I know that kind of rhymes. But uh, anyway, great experience. Great experience. Uh, had a lot of fun. Met a lot of neat people. Uh, during the show today, uh, you're going to hear my interview with Grover Norquist. And you're going to hear my interview with a gentleman named uh, Colin Hanna. So uh, you want to stay tuned for that. Today's kind of a tax day. I wanted to talk about taxes. Some interesting stuff that came out, and it ties in with our conversations uh, at CPAC. By the way, CPAC, you get a chance to go next year, go. It's worth the money, worth the time, worth the effort. Uh, Terrific speakers. Got to meet a lot of nice people. And it, it was interesting. Because according to my estimate, and it was totally unscientific, just my own observation, but uh, about 60, 65% of the people there, college students, gave me hope. Gave me hope. Made me feel old, but that's secondary. But uh, that many kids, call them kids, they're in their 20s, sharp. They knew the issues. They communicated well. They were engaged. And it felt good to see that. Felt very good to see that. And we're going to talk to some of them in uh, upcoming shows. But uh, I, I would guess 60-plus percent were uh, college kids. Now, something came out in town hall this week. I wanted to mention this as a preface uh, to talking about taxes. And it's uh, the, the, the uh, title of the article uh, was, Obama's very interested in raising taxes through executive action. Very short story on townhall.com, a gentleman by the name of Con Carroll uh, has the byline, and it, it talks about raising taxes through unilateral executive action. And this came right from a White House press secretary, Josh Ernest, and uh, said that the, the president's very interested in doing this. Now, he said, I don't want to leave the impression that there is some imminent announcement when there's not, at least not that he knows of, of course. But he's asked, uh, the president has asked his team to examine the array of his executive authorities that are available to him to make progress on his goal, re-agenda. Okay? Now, of course, they, 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 you know, they'd be able to do this without any input from Congress. 
And by my estimate, Congress would probably roll right over and let them do it. Uh, we saw what what uh, the House did on the Department of Homeland Security uh, lever that they had. They just threw it away, gave uh, the Democrats and President Obama everything they wanted on on illegal amnesty and and uh, that kind of stuff. But I could see Congress doing this or allowing this to happen because they're going to start out with simply closing loopholes and shutting down tax avoidance strategies. Now, a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about uh, a member of the Senate Finance Committee, Ron Wyden. He's a Democrat from Oregon. And uh, we're gonna, I'm going to show you why he thinks the tax code is unfair. The level of ignorance on this is going to astound you, simply astound you. It's incredible. Even for a, a senator, it's incredible. Okay, but it's coming up a little bit later in the show. But I wanted to touch on this executive action and raising taxes through executive action and why I think Congress will allow this to happen. Congress, what do they think about? I've said over and over again that when a member of Congress, either a senator or a representative, when they get reelected on the first Tuesday in November, the first thought that comes into their head Wednesday, the first Wednesday in November after the election, when their feet hits the ground out of bed, their first thought is, what do I have to do to get reelected? So... Once they're in office thinking, what do I have to do to get reelected? And what don't I want to do that will prevent me from getting reelected? And raising taxes is one of those things that's likely to prevent some of these people from getting reelected. So if they can say, shoot, wasn't me, not me, I didn't do it. President Obama did that through executive action, stroke of a pen. I didn't vote for raising your taxes. I had no say in it. They didn't even let me vote. Yes, he violated the Constitution. Yes, he has no authority to do that, but he did it. And the courts let him. And, you know, I really didn't want that to happen. No different than than Speaker Boehner's statement about the Department of Homeland Security. It disgusts me, I'm paraphrasing. It disgusts me the way he's uh, circumvented the Constitution and put together this this amnesty program, but you know it's in the courts now. It's in the courts, so we're going to fund it. We're going to fund it through the end of this fiscal year, September thirtieth, and we're going to let the courts decide. I can see that happening with raising taxes through executive action. I can see it happen. I can see President Obama doing it. And I can see Congress letting them do it. And uh, the thing I don't have a full explanation for yet is, what are we going to do? And we'll talk about that in upcoming shows. Coming up, I got my uh, interview with Grover Norquist. Grover is the president of the Americans for Tax Reform. And uh, we taped uh, uh, an interview with Grover. And uh, that's coming up next. You'll want to stay with us. It's an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. 
Now, back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We are back. I'm Gary Rathbun. This is An Economy of One. We have with us now Grover Norquist. He's the president of Americans for Tax Reform. Grover, thanks uh, for coming by. Appreciate it. Delighted to be here. You know, uh, you've been uh, put in the uh, crosshairs quite often for for your commitment to uh, lowering taxes. And, uh, um, you know, at, at CPAC here, we have nobody has declared their candidacy, of course, but mm-hmm. we have a lot of suspected candidacy, uh, candidates. And one of those is, of course, Jeb Bush. Yep. And was it yesterday or the day before you'd mentioned uh, somewhere that uh, uh, you think uh, – Governor Bush is going to sign an anti-tax pledge, your anti-tax pledge. Yes. The reason for that is that he has not signed it as a governor. He did not raise taxes while he was governor, but he was always open to raising taxes. And he made an unfortunate comment in 2011, 2012, that uh, he would support a tax increase as part of a budget deal. Now, of course, the Republican Party position at that time and today was we're not raising taxes. End of story full stop. We were only cutting spending uh, as part of the budget deal with Obama, and we won. It got everything we wanted on the spending restraint, and the effort to include a tax increase was an effort by the Democrats to undermine everything we were doing that Jeb Bush walked in and and upset the uh, uh, apple cart, um, took the chessboard, (laughs) and upended it uh, in, in Obama's favor. And so for six months, we had to live with the press telling us, well, a lot of Republicans want to raise taxes. Name one, Jeb Bush. Any others? No. Um, So that was odd and unfortunate. And at the end of the day, to be fair to uh, Bush, he has not run for office since 2002. That is 12 years ago. He's not run for office as a challenger for 16 years. He's like out of shape. And he um, predates the Tea Party. He doesn't understand that the Tea Party fundamentally changed American politics and the Republican Party, a party that learned through his father's error, the tax increase, Mm -hmm. threw away a perfectly good presidency. It wasn't his presidency. It was the Republican Party's presidency, and he threw it away with his own personal mistake of lying to the American people and betraying their trust by promising, vote for me, I won't raise taxes, how he won the primary, it's how he won the general, and then he broke his word. Read my lips. And the son didn't learn from dad's mistake. You know, if my dad had thrown away a perfectly good presidency, I would learn from that. I would go, (laughs) you know, there's something to be learned from every failure, and I will learn not to make the same mistake dad made. Um, Jeb thinks that when somebody asks him, do you promise not to raise taxes, they're saying, do you want to dish your dad? Okay, this isn't about his dad. Mm-hmm. It's about the country. It's about taxpayers. And he's got to not depersonalize it. That said, all the other candidates have taken the pledge as governors, as senators. They've all kept it. Uh, they haven't found it to be a problem with their principles to stand before the American people and say, you know what? I'm not going to raise your taxes. I'm going to reform government so it costs less. And Jeb says, nah, that's too much work. I don't think he meant to say that. I think he's talking as a guy from another decade uh, who missed the Tea Party revolution who missed his father's throwing away a perfectly good presidency and maybe too close to it to be able to understand what happened. Um, when he steps back and does this, I think he'll realize, as his brother did, who took the pledge, that the solution to his father's mistake was to keep the pledge. Mm-hmm. Not to avoid the pledge, but to take it and keep it. That's what uh, George W. Bush did. So at the end of the day, I think Jeb will, because the modern Republican Party uh, requires two things of its candidates that they not raise taxes 
and that they fight to keep spending down. Do you think that, you know, we've we've talked to a lot of people over the last couple of days, and, you know, the deficit, um, the national debt, the, the unfunded entitlements, all that kind of stuff, have we reached the... The point of of no return on on government spending. I mean, it, it, every year it goes up. President Obama's latest budget increases spending by what seven or nine percent or something. And the difference is they're just borrowing it. Sure. Uh, two things. Uh, one, the President Bush can put any budget he wants together. He's got a cap on spending. It's called the sequester. He can't spend as much money right. as he wants. Right. I uh, can write a budget to have fun. He also has a bunch of tax increases in that budget. They're not going anywhere. Uh, so uh, we actually are spent, we're spending um, less between 2010 2014. Spending actually went down. Really? Because, yeah, because of the sequester. Because of the sequester. Um, also, he, Bush wanted to repeat the $400 billion a year uh, stimulus package. Remember the two-year, eight hundred right, billion. Right, we wanted right. to do a year three, four, five, six, and seven. The Republicans took the House and Senate, so we got two years, full stop, never again. That's four hundred billion down from what he wanted. Right. Um, so he lost a lot on that. Uh, the Ryan budget plan, the path to prosperity, uh, reforms entitlements, reforms welfare, the various hundred eighty-five welfare systems by um, programs by. Uh, Block granting them to the states, cut spending by six trillion dollars over the next ten years. Wow! And take spending, which is on track to go up to forty percent of GDP, down to sixteen percent of GDP. So it's a radical change. Uh, the Republican Party has, in the House has voted for it four times, which means they've been elected twice in twelve and fourteen after voting for it two times and then four times. What did they learn? It's not a poison pill. It's not the third rail of American politics. It's actually a popular position in those districts. Um, almost all of the Republicans in the Senate have voted for that uh, Ryan plan as well. As soon as you have a Republican president, they're going to pass the Ryan plan. The Ryan plan puts us on a U-turn away from our present road to serfdom. So it's not too late. I mean, every year it's more expensive and more difficult. Every year you wait. That's true. I wish we'd done this four years ago. But that said, um, we can... With one more president and 51 Senate votes, enough to do a, a uh, reconciliation bill, we can turn the country on a path back towards uh, smaller government mm -hmm. and make it stick. And the Democrats would have to win the House, the Senate, and the presidency back and change the law to, to reverse that. And I don't think they can. Yeah, I, I think that'd be a very difficult thing, yeah. even by cutting back on the entitlements. I mean, everybody knows in this country, everybody senses that entitlements have, have got to be cut back. I mean, yes. we, we just can't stay on the path we're on and, and do that. Um, let's switch gears a little bit, talk a, little, uh, a couple of different subjects while I have you. Uh, net neutrality. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of went through yesterday. I don't think it's going to be implemented right away. I think there are going to be a lot of court challenges and that kind of stuff. But um, what, what's your thoughts on, on that power grab? Well, they wanted to pass something that they called net neutrality as a law, and Congress wouldn't do it. Right. So then they said, well, tell you what we'll do. We will uh, deem that the Internet and cable is a public utility, right. like the water company or an electric company. Uh, that means a whole bunch of taxes are attached to it. It means the government has all this control. Uh, it basically nationalizes an entire industry. Uh, it's not net neutrality. It's, it's establishing a small F fascist 
control, you know, privately owned, mm-hmm. publicly run structure, fascism, not communism. Communism, when the government owns it and runs it. <laughs> fascism is when the government lets you own it, but they run it. That's right. Uh, I've never quite caught the, why those aren't pretty close to the same thing. Well, I'm sure it just is a reminder. You, you, you've seen the old analogy about the cows. Yes, yes, you know, yes. That's and, right. Uh, I, I think that's very apropos for, for defining those different terms. So what they're passing is the FCC says, we say you're a utility. Well, they're not a utility. Uh, and it'll go to court. And the reason they tried to do it legislatively for so long is that they didn't think there was any legal way they could do it this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a disaster. It's bad. It's a tax increase. I think we can retur- restore it, but it may take a court challenge. Okay. One of the uh, things that came out recently, and, and we talked about this on, on several shows, was, um, and I think it was just a trial balloon. I'm not sure how serious President Obama was about it, but... Uh, Wanted to take away essentially the the uh, 529 college savings yes. plans, mm-hmm. and uh, we had several callers into the show at the time, and I said, "Well, that makes perfect sense. He's making college free. Why do you need 529 plans anymore?" <laughs> you know? He he's he's as serious as a heart attack. He wants to end 401ks, IRAs, health mm-hmm. savings accounts, flexible spending accounts, uh, and 529s. There are seven million families, 12 million different accounts for children. He doesn't like that. They have $20,000 in. Families are making provision for themselves. He'd rather have everybody dependent on the largesse of the state. He wants to put caps on 401ks and IRAs, which would then come down and make them useless. He uh, has already damaged HSAs and flexible spending accounts through Obamacare. He hates when people can take care of themselves with their own resources. He doesn't want that to continue. He wants to crush it. It was not a mistake. It was on purpose. And when... In the past, they've limited HS, um, 401ks and IRAs. Just by ha- discussing limits, fewer people enter it. Well, Grover, I really appreciate you coming by. I know you're a busy guy here at CPAC and a lot of stuff going on. And uh, appreciate you coming by and spending a few minutes with us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Gary Raspin, an economy of one. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We are back. That was my interview with Grover Norquist. Grover, nice guy. Treated me very well, very professional, very knowledgeable. Very nice. Gives me, gives me some hope about the future of the, uh, the uh, republic and, and maybe getting this tax code uh, under control. Speaking of the tax code, um, saw some stuff today. It came out of the Senate Finance Committee, and, uh, of course, uh, the chairman is Orrin Hatch. He's a Republican out of Utah, but the uh, ranking member is a, a gentleman by the name of Ron Wyden. He's a Democrat from, from Oregon. Now we're starting to see a trend, and I saw it at CPAC. Uh, I'm going to keep keep bringing CPAC up for the next few weeks. That, that really, really uh, did something for me, and uh, I want to try and transfer as much of that as I can to you. But uh, something that was brought up at CPAC, just about every speaker mentioned one name, Reagan. We got to get back to Reagan-esque. We got to get back to Reagan thinking. We got to get back to Reagan leadership. And we're starting to see that 
a lot being used not only on the the Republican side, but also now on the Democrat side. It's kind of like President Obama using the term middle class all the time. We're seeing middle class, middle class, middle class everywhere. And we'll talk about that sometime in the future. But Orrin Hatch came out and went back to talking about uh, President Reagan in the 80s and what he did for taxes. And and this is a beautiful quote. I hope that it strikes you as as much as it, it struck me. So here's Senator Orrin Hatch, and he says, He's talking about the Reagan era three decades ago. Hard to believe it was 30 years ago. Anyway, quote, during that effort, President Reagan emphasized three principles for tax reform, efficiency, fairness, and simplicity. I've made, this is is going back to Orrin Hatch now, I've made no secret that I believe these same principles, along with a handful of others, should guide our current reform effort. A handful of others. Okay, what others? What principles does he have? This is, it's it's amazing. Last week, the Finance Committee had a hearing on on efficiency and growth. Okay, that's, that's, that's damn near as funny as I've made no secret that I believe these same principles, along with a handful of others. <laughs> he's he said a, a a hearing on simplicity will be coming in the future. Tuesday's hearing focused solely on tax reform goal of fairness. Fairness. Whenever I hear the word fairness, I get this irresistible urge to grab my ankles. I mean, come on, this is incredible. Anyway, I want to get to uh, the quotes from Senator Wyden. He's talking about, and, and, and he invoked President Reagan also. Let's try to meet the standard of fairness of President Reagan. He wants to hone in on two important things of the 86 Act. First, it gave fair treatment to wage earners instead of punishing them by taxing their income at higher rates than others. Okay, yeah, I'll go with that. And second, it cracked down on tax cheats who pry open loopholes and skirt their responsibilities. Responsibilities. Let's think about that word for a minute. Is it your responsibility to to pay for everything? Certainly, I don't get up in the morning and say, geez, I got to bust my butt today to fill my responsibility of giving the government my money that I have earned. But he, he uses the phrase, sophisticated taxpayers are able to hire lawyers and accountants to take advantage of these dodges. But hearing about these loopholes must make the middle class taxpayers want to pull their hair out. Well, I haven't wanted to pull my hair out for about 15 years. It's kind of fallen out on its own. But anyway, let's look at the six examples that he quoted. And I'll get to as many of these as I can in the time we have. First, using collars to avoid paying capital gains taxes. Taxpayers own appreciated stocks may lock in the gain by using a collar that involves purchasing two simultaneous options 
to buy and sell the stock at set prices to hedge against stock price fluctuation. In this way, taxpayers are able to lock in capital gain while bearing little economic risk for a change in value in the security without constructively selling it. There is no constructive sale, then no capital gains taxes are paid. The level of ignorance here is astounding to me. Astounding. What difference does it make if an investor spends money, spends money to lock in the price of a security? No different, no different than buying an option on real estate, which happens all day, every day, all over this great country. No different. It does not protect that stock. It only locks it into a certain corridor. Yes, it minimizes the downside, but it also limits the upside. And there is a time frame on this. It does expire. It's not locked in for everything or forever. He talks about using wash sales to time the recognition of capital income. Absolutely right. Key is to time the recognition of the income, not avoid it. Doesn't avoid it. Come December, yeah, I look at my taxes, I look at my stock trades, I look at all of my businesses and real estate transactions and that kind of stuff, and I try to minimize my taxes for that year. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing illegal. Doesn't avoid anything. It would be no different than simply not selling something. Listen to this guy. He wants to make you recognize gain, whether you recognize it or pay tax on gain, whether you recognize it or not. Another thing he looks at is using derivatives to convert ordinary income to capital gains or convert capital losses to ordinary losses. Yeah, so what? It's legal. It's in the tax code. It's not a gray area. It's been going on forever and ever. Now, he just wants to put the image in your head that these are only available for rich people, they're dodging taxes, and it's costing you money. People use derivatives to avoid constructive ownership rules for partnership interests. This has been around for hedge funds forever. Some taxpayers use what they call swaps. These are another derivative instrument. And it mimics the ownership of a partnership rather than directly purchasing an interest in the partnership. Now, swaps are used everywhere in bond market, in oil leases, everywhere. Even government bond markets have swaps. The final thing he looks at is avoiding income taxes by deferring compensation. This has been used for executives for years. An IRA is deferring compensation. A 401k is deferring compensation. Come on. These are not loopholes. These are ways of maximizing our wealth and keeping our money. Like you said, the level of ignorance here about investments astounds me. Just simply astounds me. 
Coming up, we got another interview with a gentleman, Colin A. Hanna. He's the president of Let Freedom Ring USA. And we're going to talk to him about sunsetting the entire IRS code. You'll want to stay for that. Gary Raspin, an economy of one. Now, back to an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. We are back at CPAC. Kind of rhymes, doesn't it? I'm Gary Rathbun. This is an economy of one. Joining us now is Colin Hanna. He's the president of Let Freedom Ring USA, Inc. And uh, we've been talking a lot about uh, what they have initiated and gotten behind. It's called Sunset the Tax Code. Uh, Colin, thanks for uh, joining me today. And... uh, Let's talk about this a little bit. You want to get rid of the tax code by a specific date. Exactly right, Gary. Here's the point. Everyone agrees that the current tax code is unfair and inefficient. Mm -hmm. There's no problem getting people to agree with that. It's completely unworkable. In the Commerce Clearinghouse version, which is the one that most tax practitioners use, it's over 70,000 pages. In the shortest version that I have ever seen published, the one published by the government printing office that has no explanatory text, just the pure raw legislative language, it's over 2,600 pages of tiny print. Nobody can understand it. Isn't that the very definition of immoral, something that doesn't treat people equally, that people can't understand unless they bought their way into some sort of special favor? So if everyone agrees with that, What's holding us back? Well, what's holding us back is that not everyone can agree on what the replacement ought to be. And what I'm trying to do is to use this as a catalyst. Get the flat taxers and the fair taxers, and for that matter, even a handful of progressives who want to see the tax code become even more progressive, and let us all agree that the current code is so unworkable that if we want to do tax reform, we'd be far better off working from a blank slate to begin with rather than a convoluted, complex, indecipherable 73,000-page tax code. So let's all get together and agree to sunset the tax code at a date certain that is far enough in the future that it's not going to cause uncertainty in the financial markets and close enough that it actually precipitates action. I've I've chosen a date arbitrarily of December 31, 2019. That's four and a half, four and a half years from now. And I think that's probably a pretty good range. I could care less whether it's four years, four and a half, five years, but I think it ought to be somewhere in that range. And I'm completely agnostic as to what the replacement ought to be. I've got my own private opinion, but for the purposes of this project, I'm not talking about championing any replacement. All I'm saying is Let the debate begin in seriousness with a completely blank slate rather than let it devolve into a kind of college bull session that never goes anywhere. Right. I mean, we've we've had people talking about uh, changing the tax code, fixing the IRS, fixing the code for years, and it seems like the solution is always... Let's add another five, ten thousand pages. Exactly. I'm afraid that if we start from the current convoluted tax code and 
we say we're going to reform it, we take a 73,000 code and make it an 85,000-page code. Right. That's absurd. That's absolutely absurd. So we've got to start from scratch, redo it, and I think there is broad public support. I've seen one private congressional survey that I cannot cite the details on because it's a private survey, but I'm allowed to share this one statistic, and that is that sunsetting or abolishing the tax code has about 80% support, 80% public support. I remember what Newt Gingrich used to say about a so-called 80% issue. That's an issue that has 80% support. He said, what do you do when you find an 80% issue? You stand next to it and smile. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like Gingrich. Yeah, yeah. that's a perfect Gingrich. A perfect example. And then he goes on to say, and let the other guy stand next to it and frown. Think about the debate in Congress. Just think about this. If you have somebody in a very articulate and powerful and compelling way talk about sunsetting the tax code and somebody's on the other side, no matter what they say, they are in effect saying, oh, no, I like like the tax code. I'd like to keep it just the way it is. I want to have that debate all day long. You know, one of the the issues I can think of uh, as we're sitting here talking about this, um, we're approaching... 50%, 50%, at least the rumor has it, that we're approaching 50% of the people that pay no taxes, but yet get a huge entitlement, uh, get money from the government. Is that the resistance point? I mean, because those people vote, I mean, is that part of the resistance point for Congress? Well, thank you, Mr. Romney, for bringing up that point. <laughs> I'm not running for president, by the way, so... Uh... No, but here, but even... Even someone who is not paying taxes can easily grasp the idea that taxes ought to be fair and simple and that a tax code that is too complex for the average taxpayer to be able to figure out is a corrupt tax code. Even if they aren't paying taxes and even if under its replacement there's a very good chance they would be paying taxes, they're more concerned with fairness than they are just with self-interest. Mm-hmm. There are some that, of course, purely self-interested, motivated, and we may not get them, but so what? That's the 20%. Right. 80% are with us on this issue. Let's put it in legislative form. Congressman Bob Goodlatt from Virginia, who happens to be the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, actually has a bill that does almost exactly what we're asking for. And he's now got, he's introduced it it's not on the floor yet. He's introducing it and, and assembling uh, co-sponsors. He's got 72 co-sponsors for it already. That's tremendous. You know, one of the things that, that you know, is kind of our responsibility or partially my responsibility in doing the show is educating people that, you know, if there's less tax paid, that's more capital into the economy. Oh, absolutely. More jobs. That's, that's, that's a different debate. I'm with you on it. But I want to keep things simple in this project. I want to focus people on how bad the current tax code is and how the only real way to fix it is to junk it and start fresh. Now, it, Sunsetthetaxcode.com. It, 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 let me be devil's advocate a little bit. That would be the devil. Yeah, that would be. Um, <laughs> it, 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 you know, how do you envision that happening? I mean, it, it, it just... The whole thing starts shrinking proportionally? No, no, no. Or we start I, I, cutting no, out you, the, you the set more a specific, egregious? You set a specific date which says the current tax code is over 
it is legislatively terminated on this date. Oh, then okay. the Congress must come up with an alternative prior to that date. Oh, okay. And what Congressman Goodlatte's bill actually happened to pick the very same termination date that we had, which is December 31, 2019, and it says that there must be a new tax code in place by July 1, 2019, so six months before the end of the current tax code, yeah, giving, yeah. giving the turbo taxes and the accountants of the world the opportunity to gear up. And guess sure. what? If it's a simple tax code, it's not hard to gear up. Right, right. So hence the term sunset. Thank you. It's going to sunset on that day. Exactly right. You've got it. Okay. Come on board. Bring your audience on board. We're there, buddy. Good. Well, then send them to sunsetthetaxcode.com. Let them uh, click on the two links we have based upon their zip code, which they put in. We can find their member of Congress plus their two senators from their state and write to them. And we've got a special tool on the website that has them write to them not by sending an email, not by sending a fax, not by sending a paper letter, but by actually connecting right into what they call their web form, which is the single form of communication that members of Congress and the Senate prize among all others, because it's inside their website. And we have this cool piece of software that links into it so that even though uh, you might want to write the same letter to three different members, uh, and they all have three different web forms. This piece of software pulls it right in, and it, it looks like you got on their website and, and wrote them a personal note. So, so you guys are responsible for net neutrality. Then. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a fan of net neutrality, but I think that's another show, another talk, another time. Right, right. I was being facetious. Yeah. Uh, what kind of response are you getting? Phenomenal response. I would imagine this is your crowd. Absolutely. Phenomenal response. Excellent. Excellent. Well, sunsetthetaxcode.com. We're going to put that on our website. Great. Put it on our Facebook, that kind of stuff. Uh, Appreciate you taking the time. I know this is busy. No, it's my my pleasure, and it's great to be on your show, and I wish you the best as it continues to grow. Now, Let Freedom Ring USA has a website also, Yes, letfreedomringusa.com. We're a broad-based conservative organization formed in 2004, so we've been around for 11 years. We do everything from promoting constitutional government to economic freedom to traditional values to strong military to calling our enemy who they are and things like that. Excellent. Well, I appreciate you joining us this afternoon. My pleasure. I appreciate your time, and I hope... Uh, we can twist your arm again, get you on the show again, and give us some updates. Won't and take keep much the twisting. message going out. That so. sounds good to me. Thanks, I appreciate it. Colin Hanna, president of Let Freedom Ring USA, a uh, new program that they're uh, behind, sunsetthetaxcode.com. I want you to have a great day. I want you to be an individual, be self-reliant, be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.